Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Travel with me, my friends, to a past era, a time where sin, debauchery, evil, oppression, and all forms of villainy took place. But humanity, in general, was working toward righting the wrongs, promoting morality, freeing the oppressed, and punishing the criminals. That might glorify a generality a bit, but man, them days don't come back, do they? Or at least that's how it appears right now. It seems like the general direction of 150 years ago in our country and globally has been flipped on its head today, and now we're just trucking right back down that road we've already rolled over. On today's episode, we're going to feast on a veritable buffet of evil, and then we'll travel back to a time when the phrase, enough is enough, actually meant something. Speaking of enough being enough, goal update after the closing bumper. So grab your knife and fork, and something to vomit in, and then prepare to feel a little bit of pride mixed with just a dash of hope. So for better or worse, here we go. I think we've all heard it said that if someone were to pitch a screenplay of our world today, it would get shot down by every director, producer, and production house in existence. Think about it. Our world today is not a comedy. It's not a fantasy. It's definitely not made for kids. The action is really poorly done. The plot is thin and weak. And overall, the premise and the storyline are so implausible, so ridiculous, nobody would have any interest in slogging through to the end of this tripe. Unfortunately, I think we've also heard it said that truth is stranger than fiction, and here we are. Now in this segment, it's going to run a little bit longer, I'm going to try something a bit different. I want to paint a picture of where we currently are and why. Start planning what happy shows you're going to watch or listen to after this, as this will be an honest, although fairly rapid-fire look at eight different news stories that have all dropped in the last few weeks to months. But before we get started, we need to do a little bit of legwork. Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God 
gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So who was Paul talking about? Well, he was talking to the Christians and the Jewish converts in Rome. A few verses prior to that passage he was talking to them, he mentioned that he was wanting to reap a harvest among them and the Gentiles. He also says that he is under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. The bottom line, he was speaking to humanity. Three times in that passage, Paul states that God gave humanity up. He gave them up to follow the lust in their hearts. He gave them up to their dishonorable passions. And he gave them up to a debased mind. Heart, soul, and mind. God gave them up. See, the body is really a kind of a skin suit, right? But the heart, soul, and mind, that's who a human being is. And God, because of their rebellion, gave up all that these rebellious humans are to do as they'd please, to follow their lusts. Now, backing up about 1,950 years from that point, we see that Jesus, in a theophany or a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, came to Abraham and told him that he was going to destroy Sodom, saying, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, the two angels that were with him left to go to the city. Jesus hung back as Abraham pleaded with him to spare the city for the sake of the righteous remnant that he assumed must be there. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham kept working the number down, right? Each time Jesus, in his patience, agreed that he would do as Abraham requested. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of the five? Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And we know what happened. Sodom was destroyed the next day. There weren't ten righteous. We don't know what all was going on, but we see exactly what Paul had described, don't we? Put simply, God gave the people of Sodom up to the lusts of their heart, their dishonorable passions, and their debased minds. And they did what ought not to be done. If you back up another 450 years from there, we come to the days of Noah, pre-flood, 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. See, now we're given even less information as to what was going on in the days of Noah, but every intention, think soul, passion, of the thoughts, the mind, the debased mind, of his heart, right? The lust of the heart was only evil continually. This again describes a general population that was given up. Now we're done with the setup. But I want you to keep in mind, in all of these scenarios, I can guarantee that there were people that helped the widows, that cared for the crippled, that took care of the orphans, that fed the hungry, etc., etc. I guarantee that inside of what we think of as a complete and total evil world, there was an amount of human goodness that was being done. This, to me, is part of the delusion we're under as God gives us up as a society. We look at very surface-level humanity and say, sure, I mean, bad things are going on. Humanity is messed up, kind of off track. But at the core, we're good people. But no, we're not. Humanity, without the sovereign intervention of God, is depraved and wicked and evil, debauched, bound for hell. Now, a lot of people think that we are currently in the very last days, as in God could come back at any second. So we just stand around, bags packed, staring up at the clouds, waiting. Now, God can do what he wants, and I'm sure he probably appreciates my permission, but I personally don't think we're there yet. I don't see the population of the earth as being given up, at least not to the level that it appears was Sodom or those before the flood. But how close are we? Well, I don't know, but we're running about as fast as we can straight toward being given up. So with all of that intro, sorry for the long intro, let's take a look at what's going on in just the last handful of weeks around the world, the Western, you know, the enlightened, sophisticated, intelligent world, not the savage, brutal, ignorant world. Our launching pad is found on theblaze.com. Headline, school board member suggests it isn't safe to hire Christian teachers due to their support for monogamy, family, and sexual morality. Tamilia Valenzuela, a member of the Washington Elementary School District School Board in Arizona, appears to be a ton, maybe a ton and a half, of just pure fun. In her school board photo, she's sporting green streaks in her hair, some tattoo something on the inside of her arm, a black shirt that I'll be honest, I'm not entirely sure where that shirt ends and the chair back begins, but she's covering most of that chair back anyway, so it really doesn't matter. And then my favorite part, the the cute little kitty ears on top of her head. She describes herself as, quote, a bilingual, disabled, neurodivergent, queer, black, Latina, a mother and a wife, a community organizer and activist who devotes her time to serving her community and working with various community organizations throughout the valley. She loves a good hot wing, but only with the right ranch, and things that sparkle. Now, I believe all of that except for the part about uh, a hot wing. (laughs) No way. Not just a single. No, no way. Anyway, Arizona Christian University has had a partnership with this elementary school district and wanted to continue being able to send student teachers to get some experience and to help with the teacher shortage that's impacting everyone everywhere. But 
Ms. or Mix or Meow Mix Valenzuela was able to get the other woke to this to vote with her that a university that has literally admitted to being, quote, committed to Jesus Christ accomplishing his will and advancements on earth as in heaven. Ugh. Well, that was, you know, very, very dangerous for the children and just should not continue. Now, don't get her wrong. She totally believes in freedom of religion. This is literally doing violence to the three board members that are LGBTQ. The three board members out of the five on the school board. You know, the majority of the board members on the board. Now, she didn't say that exactly like that, but I mean, let's be honest. She kind of did though, right? And this institution that has has their right to believe and propagate hatred as they see fit, can do what they like, but the the combination of them claiming to believe in Jesus and the, the Bible and hold the crazy belief that homosexuality at all is sinful, well, that's just too far, and, and we can't have little children indoctrinated with that garbage, not while they're being indoctrinated with the opposite message. Now, all of these articles are linked in the notes if you'd like to read them in their entirety, and I would... I'd suggest it. I'd recommend it. But as we get off the ground, we'll head over to notthebee.com. Headline, Nebraska Democrat wants to ban kids from vacation Bible school and church youth groups to prove some point about drag shows. Now, this was later played off by Nebraska State Senator Megan Hunt as being a lark just for guffaws. She'll be going through her entire set at the local comedy club, I'm sure. Laugh till you pee. Soon, probably soon. She was angry that a bill had been proposed that would ban minors from attending drag show performances. You know, where mentally ill, perverted men dress up like horrid, ugly women so they can thrust their goods in the faces of children. Something they would have been arrested for only a few years ago if there was anything left of them to arrest after Dad got through with him. Yeah, this state senator, an aged and wise, shall we say enlightened and very definitely awoke 37-year-old, I'm assuming female, I mean, she, she it, it appears to be female, politician, thinks that kids should be able to have a groomer's twigs and berries wiggle all around them. So enlightened. <laughs> so because she didn't like that bill, she proposed her own, quote, Abusers within churches and other religious institutions often use events like church or youth group-sponsored camps and retreats to earn children's trust and gain unsupervised access to such children in order to commit sexual abuse. The bill defines, quote, a religious indoctrination camp as a, quote, camp, vacation Bible study, retreat, lock-in, or convention held by a church, youth group, or other religious organization for the purpose of indoctrinating children— with a specific set of religious beliefs. <laughs> See what I mean? She is just a hoot. So we don't want a Christian involved in teaching children because that might mean they'd have some internal conflict against the LGBTQ agenda. And we don't want kids going to church things because it's possible they could learn about Jesus. I mean, it's it's possible they could be abused as opposed to going to a disgusting, perverted drag show where the child will definitely be sexually molested. So this is what they want. Quote, They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up. So what do we get? Well, in no particular order, and hang on, this is where we pick up a lot of speed. Remember, all the articles uh, 
are linked in the notes here. So found on notthebee.com headline, Spain decriminalizes sexual relations with animals as long as there is no physical injury that requires a veterinary visit. Exodus 22.19, anyone who has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death. Leviticus 18.23, do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Leviticus 20.15-16, if a man has sexual relations with an animal, he must be put to death and you must kill the animal. If a woman approaches an animal to have sexual relations with it, kill both the woman and the animal. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Deuteronomy 27.21, cursed is the man who has sexual relations with any animal. But Spain, part of the enlightened Western world, knows better, apparently. The bottom line, who are we to judge, right? I mean, there are simply some people that identify as a zoophile. What's wrong with that? Seriously. Does anyone, anyone at all remember the Christian saying that... Uh, Homosexual marriage was the gateway drug, the first step down a very slippery slope, which will include the removal of laws against uh, polyamory, polygamy, pedophilia, and bestiality, as well as others. Yeah, what a bunch of maroons. That <laughs> could never happen. All they want is for two people that just really love each other to be able to be married. That's all. Not one thing more. Remember, now we've learned that pedophiles are really just minor attracted persons, maps, in fact. And it's fine if, if they don't act on it. And zoophiles are just animal attracted persons, I guess, apps. And although it, it used to be fine if they just didn't act on it, now it's fine if they do. I wonder what PETA has to say about this. Now, I see that they say that PETA women, or I guess whatever, should go on a sex strike against men who eat meat, they have a statement on bestiality from 2016, basically saying that since the animal can't give consent, it's literally raping the animal. And I mean, what you know, something I agree with PETA on, but I'm not seeing a statement on Spain's new enlightened worldview. Oh, well, I'm sure it's coming. Let's move on, shall we? Again, found on notthebee.com, headline, We are now at the point of societal collapse where leading newspapers write stories on Yale professors who want to kill off all the old people. So, an assistant professor of economics at Yale, Yusuke Narita, has worked out how to deal with Japan's aging society. They're, they're having problems with too many old people and not enough births. You know, to the point that the Japanese government is starting to give cash bonuses if you have a kid. But Yusuke said, quote, I feel like the only solution is pretty clear. In the end, isn't it mass suicide and mass supuku of the elderly? Now, just FYI, supuku, and I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but I like the way I'm saying it, is an act of ritual disembowelment that was code among the dishonored samurai in the 19th century. So that's how you want grandma to go, huh? <laughs> Hi! <clears throat> he later said that there would be a possibility of making euthanasia mandatory at some point in the future. Not now, don't be silly. And then shortly after that, he said that his comments have been taken out of context. I mean, it's fairly easy to understand that as euthanasia and tsubuku are fairly general, ill-defined terms, right? I mean, let's be honest. This is purely an economic worldview. If you judge life based on dollar signs or the currency of your choice, then yes, the elderly are only viable if the country has enough young people and enough wealth to support them. And even then, it's really just an act of charity. 
But Japan has none of that. And they're not alone. Many countries have a suboptimal birth rate right now, and I don't think there's a country that has a favorable economic position. That said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? We also know that where your treasure is, there your... What? Yeah, your heart will will be also. Exodus 20.12, honor your father and your mother. That one seems like uh, it was one of the more important ones, if I remember correctly. In Job 12.12, Job himself states, Wisdom is with the aged, and with long life comes understanding. Leviticus 19.32 says, Stand up in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God. I am the Lord. Psalm 71.9 says, Do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. Now, at no point do we ever see anything that tells us that we should ignore, shun, put away, or murder the elderly. But where your treasure is, right? The lust of our heart is money. We all know that the government is wasteful. They waste more money every day than most of us will make in a lifetime. And yet none of that could be cut out. The elderly either need to be killed or they need to kill themselves in order to save a buck. I mean, that's that's the only way to stay solvent as a nation. Amazing. Next, found on endtimeheadlines.org, headline, Catholic school suspends teen for remainder of year for believing God created two genders and protesting transgender students using girls' bathrooms. I mean, what do you say here? This is a Catholic high school in Renfrew, Ontario, Canada. An 11th grade student, a male, had a couple girls come to him and tell him in confidence that they really just didn't like sharing the bathroom with boys that were pretending to be girls. So as a real man, someone fulfilling his God-given biblical role as the protector, standing up to do something to protect these girls, he organized a protest against the school. And this Catholic, which... Just in case you're not sure, that's a Christian school, a Bible-based school. Now, I think Catholicism has a lot of problems. Personally, I think it's generally a misguided Christian cult, not a whole lot different than, say, Mormonism at this point, but they are supposed to be Bible-based. This Catholic school decided the agenda is more important than scientific, logical, biological, obvious biblical truth. So after the protest, the school suspended the teen boy, saying that his continued attendance could be, quote, detrimental to the physical and mental well-being of transgender students. And this was because, as the school said, he was being offensive and being a bully. This young man, clearly more intelligent, more biblical, and more manly than the entire school administration combined, said, quote, Offense is obviously defined by the offended. I expressed my religious beliefs in class, and it spiraled out of control. Not everybody's going to like that. That doesn't make me a bully. It doesn't mean I'm harassing anybody. They express their beliefs, and I express mine. Mine obviously don't fit the narrative. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Matthew 19.4, Jesus echoes that, says, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Of course, he was speaking of himself. Although this boy and these girls weren't married in the high school, the same principles apply here. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Are these girls being honored by the men in the school by forcing them to allow either perverted little boys or mentally deranged boys in their bathroom with them? So again, what do you say here? 
He did the right thing. He stood up for what's right, what's true. He stood up for his faith, for biblical wisdom and truth, and he stood up to protect the girls in his school, while the administration of the Catholic school has decided to follow the satanic humanist agenda. Can anyone say debased mind? I mean, this is definitely not the mind of Christ, is it? Found on TheBlaze.com, headline, Brain-dead women should be used as surrogates for anyone wishing to avoid burdens of gestating a fetus in their own body, Professor proposes. Now, for this, we travel all the way to Norway. Anna Smudgedor, a professor of practical philosophy at the University of Oslo, wrote about her proposal, publishing it in the Journal of Theoretical Medicine and Bioethics which is my favorite journal regarding bioethics and definitely in my top 10 for theoretical medicine. The concept is simple. For parents, or more accurately, women, I guess I probably use that term loosely now, I don't know, who can't have children, or they just prefer to not go through that entire pesky pregnancy and birthing process, well, why not use one of those brainless, coma-ridden meat sacks that are just laying around doing nothing anyway? Now, she's not an animal. She's not saying just use them. She's saying that they could tick the box on their donation form to be used as a baby factory. You can donate an organ. Why not make that organ their reproductive system, their womb, while still hooked up to the body? She gave this a catchy term, quote, whole body gestational donor, or WBGD for short. But lest your feminist hackles raise up, whatever they the hackles are, quote, the prospect of the unconscious woman's body filled and used by others as a vessel is a vivid illustration of just what feminists have fought against for many years. The prospect of male pregnancy is not, as many would imagine, fanciful or a piece of science fiction. <sighs> See, Anna's WBGD theory can simply be applied to men as well. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I think I need an adult here, but let's go on. It makes perfect sense as, quote, pregnancy and childbirth carry significant health risks, even in affluent settings with sophisticated healthcare systems, while WBGD poses no risks to the donors since they are already dead. Ah, well, easy peasy. So she argues that pregnancy and childbirth are more dangerous in terms of morbidity and mortality than measles, which I didn't fact check, but that seems unlikely. But she says we've never done anything to mitigate that risk, like our effort to eradicate measles. But if we just, quote, transfer the risks of gestation to those who are no longer able to be harmed by them. Oh, oh yes. Well, sir. Well, there. There you go. She's literally shocked that, quote, women are expected to submit themselves to the greater risks of pregnancy and childbirth than the risks of measles, almost without thinking about it. I, I mean, are we just horrible humans here? I mean, we, we must be, right? Why have we not thought about just using bodies before? As was just stated, we are created in the image of God. Because of this, we have a value as humans, beyond that of being a lump of meat or functional organs or some sort of animal, right? Now, all throughout the Bible, we see the care taken to place a body in a tomb or to ensure the body of the current patriarch is laid in the tomb of his fathers or to bring the body or the bones home 
or we see how those who have been dishonorable are further dishonored by not being buried in the tombs of their fathers, etc., etc. Now, even though I joke that at death our bodies become nothing but a meat sack, and it's sort of true, that meat sack will be raised again, either in perfection to eternity with Christ, or I'm not really sure. My guess is in maybe the same corrupted state for eternity in hell. Either way, the form of the body is not the image of God, but it was originally formed by God, as in Adam and Eve, and we are each formed by God in the womb. We further know, per a curse by God after the original sin, quote, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. See, women are the childbearers. It's not something men can do. I know that we're trying to make that happen, but unless you essentially make some Frankenstein's monster out of a man, transplanting women parts, pumping him full of women hormones, he can't just state a baby. And even then, I don't think that'll actually ever work. Either way, a man can't have a baby. A man cannot gestate a baby. This is your evolutionary thinking, that humans are just animals, bodies are just meat and organs. There's nothing special, nothing unique, so why not? Well, medically, I could think of a lot of reasons why not, as we don't really know what brain dead means. We've had more than zero people be declared brain dead and then wake up years later. Most women during pregnancy will contact their doctors at least once with a feeling or an intuition that they want the doctor to check into. How does a brain dead woman communicate this? And the list goes on. Now, this, I'm afraid, is purely vanity-based. Yes, I, I can actually understand the idea of someone who can't have a baby wanting to look at this route, but is this really the best option? Would not adopting a child, a baby, be a better option? But at the price that I'm sure this would cost and the relative rarity of this option, let's be honest here, this would be a vanity thing. This would be for the rich and the powerful that don't want their body messed with and their hormones jacked around. This is a great way to just pass the buck to the doctors and let me know when the timer goes off, I'll come in and get my baby. This would be a purely vanity-driven business. Again, the debased mind sees this as a viable option. The lust of the heart is to pass the buck. I mean, can't someone else do it? Speaking of death, let's head back to, as our press secretary says, Canada found on theblaze.com headline, and this is a quote, the most rewarding work. Canadian doctor who has euthanized over 400 boasts about assisted suicide in seminar. So the assisted suicide kick is the latest fad, and Canada is leading the way. They've legalized assisted suicide for depressed children. They've offered suicide services to a disabled woman who needed a ramp put on her house for her wheelchair because the government couldn't get to that ramp for quite some time. So, you know, you could just die. They've legalized assisted suicide for just about anyone, for just about anything. It used to not be that way. It used to be only for people with terminal illnesses, right? Prognosis of imminent death. But now, now it's just, you know, for whatever. One of the, well, they're not really doctors. They go by the term euthanasia specialists. One of uh, those said that she was able to help a man kill himself, not because he had a terminal illness, not because he had a serious illness. In fact, he apparently didn't even have the mental capacity to make informed decisions about his own health. But she helped him die anyway. <laughs> <sighs> Hashtag rewarding, right? She stated that although it's rare, and I'll interject and say, for now, although it's rare, euthanasia specialists do occasionally get someone in their office that's, you know, living in poverty 
or they're lonely, so they help them die. One of these reapers used to be an OB, you know, delivering babies, and she just sees this new profession as a way of delivering people to death, I guess. In five years, from 2016 to 2021, Canada has assisted the self-murder of over 31,000 people, with just over 10,000 of those, so about a third, being in the year 2021 alone. The numbers are increasing dramatically every single year. Now, we've already covered the biblical stance on the sanctity of life, the worth of the human. We don't need to do that again. This is a satanic religious ritual sacrifice of humanity. This is a pure display of a debased mind, both an evil, twisted mind, and a mind that's psychologically sick, that needs to be shown his worth, that needs to be shown his place in the eyes of God, that needs to be counseled and assisted in living until his appointed hour and not taking his life in his own hands. But no... You got a problem, we got the solution. Just go ahead and die and decrease the surplus population. Lastly, let's come full circle again. Found on TheBlaze.com headline, Drag show featuring people with Down syndrome in UK sparks concern of exploitation. Quote, people with Down syndrome like sex. So first of all, we're admitting that drag shows are about sex, I guess, right? That's what we're doing here. Because that calls into question how many charges should be brought against those participating in any possible way in a family-friendly drag show. You know, one made for kids. But I digress. So the picture in this article is heartbreaking. I'll be honest, a few individuals that clearly have Down syndrome painted up and dressed up to look like the other gender. This is just an entirely new level of sick abuse. For this, we need to travel, as it says, to the United Kingdom, to the drag show company Mashable. They promote this show entitled Drag Syndrome, which is composed of 10 individuals exploited on the stage next to their everyday drag perverts. Daniel Vi, himself a drag degenerate, said that this was never his plan, but in 2018, quote, it found me. As of now, this drag syndrome group has over a half a million TikTok followers, another reason to cancel and destroy that, and is currently performing with RuPaul in the UK, another sick, perverse mental degenerate. Shockingly, there are some that are pointing out the unpopular opinion that, uh, hey, this sure appears to be sexual exploitation of mentally handicapped individuals for fame and profit. The term evil seems to pop up quite a bit when described by the clearly puritanical closed mind protesters. Again, we've covered the biblical stance on this previously. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Our minds are not created to be debased. Our passions are not called to be dishonorable. Our hearts are not made to lust after the impure. But we're sinners. We have inherited our sin nature. We love our sin, therefore we sin. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now see, this is the first and greatest commandment. Notice that this is with our heart, our soul, and our mind. These are the very things that God gave sinful, rejecting man over to, to the perversion of those three, to the corruption of sin. The school board wants Christians to go practice their Christianity at home, door closed, shades pulled. Don't bring that out into the world. The representative wants to end the horrors of so-called religious indoctrination with their message of hate and evil. 
What I've given you is a small buffet of perversity around this world, the kind of degeneracy, the kind of evil that the sinful, God-hating individual not only do themselves, but give hearty approval to those that practice it. So why do I bring this kind of depressing segment to your house and plop it in the middle of your room? Well, because even these people, these God-hating, vile people are image bearers of God. I don't know what God has for their eternal destiny, but until they're dead, they are people that could be numbered among the elect. As hard as it may be, and I'm speaking for myself here, as counter to our human nature as it may feel, we need to be in prayer for those that have been given up in their mind, their spirit, and their heart. We don't know if this is a season or if God has given them over to their own lust for sin for good. And we definitely need to be in prayer for the oppressed, the exploited, the abused, the nearly erased, that God will have mercy upon them. And finally, we need to be praying for fellow believers, for each other. We need to be in good, solid churches. If your church is teaching tolerance to these or so many other vile sins, if your church is teaching nothing but fluff, nothing of substance, it's time to find a church that's in the fight, that's training us as warriors for Christ. We are the minority. We are the odd men out from a human perspective. We are the despised, as in the days of Noah. We need to be strong. We need to protect. We need to care in however large or small our circle of influence is, whether it's one-on-one or parent-to-child or if we have a reach of thousands upon thousands. We need to be unafraid, unashamed, and stand for what we know is right, even if it feels like or is a losing battle. We need to be on the offensive, put on the full armor of God, and be ready to tell others the true truth and not just capitulate to the accepted narrative. Hey, welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 30, believe it or not, which is part 12 of our look at the amendments to the Constitution. Since the last segment ran long, I'm going to try and power through this one as quickly as possible, which should be interesting, as this is the longest amendment of them all, so buckle in here. So if you recall, last week we discussed the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. We mentioned how President Lincoln was assassinated shortly before the Civil War came to an end and before this amendment was ratified, but now we're just past those two events, and still questions remained as to who these former slaves were now. The Dred Scott decision, if you recall from last week, was decided by a heavily Democrat Supreme Court in 1857. The written decision stated, among other things, that those of African descent, regardless of if they were free or enslaved, were not citizens of the United States and thus not allowed to sue in federal court. It also stated that the Fifth Amendment protected slave owners because slaves were legal property. Well, now we've got the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, so they that essentially nullified the concept that slaves were property, as slavery was now illegal. But the idea that those of African descent were not citizens Well, that was still kind of hanging out there. So the blacks that had been freed and those that were free prior to the ratification of the 13th were kind of in limbo. They were here. They were brought here against their will. Now they're free, but they're not citizens. The 14th Amendment was the first of essentially two Reconstruction era or post-Civil War era amendments. This amendment is broken into five sections, most of which are pretty straightforward, and at least in my opinion, this could be considered kind of a cleanup amendment, something to just tie up the loose ends that weren't addressed. Of course, some of the sections are broken into clauses as well, you know, just to up the complexity a little bit. So let's start taking a look at these section by section, clause by clause. Section 1 states, 
quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, this section is broken down into four clauses, typically named the Citizenship Clause, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the Due Process Clause, and the Equal Protection Clause. This section as a whole basically pulls the rights of the states to deny citizenship or deny rights away from them and places it back into the federal government, which honestly is where it should be. I mean, can you imagine the mess we'd have if certain states could deny your citizenship rights based on your color, your country of origin, your ethnicity? How about your religion or your political persuasion? Now, if we're going to be the United States, something as basic as who constitutes a citizen and the rights that go with that, that should be determined and maintained at a federal level so that no matter where you go, it's the same. So let's quickly take a look at these clauses one at a time. The Citizenship Clause states, quote, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Now, this single clause nullified the Dred Scott decision and made those of African descent, whether free before or after the passage of the 13th, or freed by the 13th, citizens of the United States. This clause and this amendment came on the heels of the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was put in place to essentially do the same thing, protect the rights and citizenship of the African people that were brought to this country and finally declared free persons. The amendment, this clause, was a way to lock in these rights in a more permanent matter. Yes, an amendment can be repealed or overwritten, but that's a much more difficult process than overturning an act. Now, this doesn't mean that you can never lose your citizenship. You certainly can, but that's defined elsewhere. Next, the Privileges or Immunities Clause states, quote, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, this is pretty simple, but it's not completely original. This clause actually piggybacks off of the clause known by the same name in Article 4 of the Constitution. In that case, it guarantees a citizen of any state the rights and privileges of the collective United States. In this case, it moves more broadly, stating that if someone is a citizen of the United States, they are granted certain rights by the fact that they're a citizen, and no state can make a law that removes or modifies those guaranteed rights. If you've ever traveled between states without being stopped at the border of the state or without having to gain permission to leave or enter a state, this is largely why. Although the states can have their own rules and laws for certain things, this is one of the clauses that help to unify the people of the United States as citizens of the country as a whole. Moving to the Due Process Clause, this one says, quote, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Now, this doesn't say that someone can't have their life taken from them via state execution, or their liberty taken from them via incarceration, or their property taken from them through seizure or forfeiture, etc., 
It's just saying that the state can't make rules and laws to persecute anyone, to try to force them out of the state or to force compliance within the state. Additionally, a state can't just decide to make a random law that would specifically penalize one individual for whatever reason. This is somewhat a copy of the Fifth Amendment, but in this case, this is specifically directed to the states. And finally, the Equal Protection Clause. This states, quote, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, this little clause has been used and abused over and over and over with definitions and redefinitions of equal protection, depending on how it's needed to be interpreted in order for the political leanings of the Supreme Court to move a ruling one direction or the other. We're not going to get in all that. This clause was put in primarily to ensure blacks were treated equally, which, depending on the state, they just simply weren't. The black codes or black laws were enforced by some states, which had certain rights for whites, different rights for blacks. And again, I think this can't be stated enough. The states that treated blacks as lesser, those were Democrat, primarily Southern Democrat controlled states. The Democrats always were, currently are, and will forever be massive racists. The Democrats don't love blacks. They don't want to help blacks. They see them as means to an end, as a demographic to be used. They still see them as slaves on their plantations, only the type of slavery has changed and the plantations are more subtle. Anywho, the black codes were things that we've all seen examples of before. White and black water fountains. It allowed for the arrest of black men under certain conditions not applied to whites. It allowed black children to be hired out for work for whites which generally turned out to be their former slave masters. They put limits on property ownership, free travel, the ability to conduct business, etc. So this Equal Protection Clause was the first shot to rectify this discrimination to treat humans with additional melanin the same as those of us with almost no melanin at all. The Supreme Court in 1880, in a case termed Strouder versus West Virginia, stated that this clause was specifically, quote, designed to assure to the colored race the enjoyment of all the civil rights that under the law are enjoyed by white persons and to give to that race the protection of the general government in that enjoyment whenever it should be denied by the states. The situation behind this case is just awful, but it, it is kind of important. As briefly as I can, I'll go over this. On April 18, 1872, Taylor Strouder, a black man, a former slave, was in an all-night argument with his wife about her alleged infidelity. This culminated with him smashing her in the side of the head twice with a hatchet handle, killing her. His stepdaughter witnessed this and was threatened to keep quiet, at which point he fled. He was arrested a week later in Pittsburgh. In his first trial, it took 90 minutes for the jury to deliberate and come back with a guilty verdict. The court then sentenced him to death by hanging. He appealed to the West Virginia Supreme Court, which, based on a technicality, which was a rule change due to West Virginia adopting a new state constitution in the middle of this trial, well, they reversed the first court's ruling and sent it back down for a retrial. At the second trial, Strouder's counsel requested that the case be moved out of state control sent to the federal courts because at the time only white men could sit on a jury, so they felt this would be inherently a hostile jury. This motion was denied by the judge. Once again, he was found guilty inside of a day of jury deliberation, with the court again sentencing him to death by hanging. A motion was made to throw out the verdict based on a complaint of impartial jury, which was denied. This was again appealed to the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, who denied the appeal but sent it back down to the lower court for resentencing for some reason. I couldn't figure that one out. 
In the interim period between that decision and the resentencing, they appealed the case to the Supreme Court based on, in part, the fact that the jury had no members of Strouder's ethnic background. The Supreme Court found that the exclusion of blacks on juries of West Virginia was in violation of the Equal Protection Clause, which was in the Constitution to ensure blacks were treated equal with whites, and since a black defendant would be assured no black jurors, this violated the clause. That said, since Strouder's counsel was not challenging the law, the Supreme Court couldn't strike the law down as unconstitutional, only give the opinion. They did order that the case be sent back to the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals, that the circuit court ruling be nullified, and that the case be handed over to the federal courts as requested. The subsequent trial found that the indictment of 1874 was technically wrong, so Strouder was released. He was rearrested immediately by the Wheeling, West Virginia Chief of Police for retrial of the actual 1872 case. Strouder's counsel argued that this entire case was still under the jurisdiction of the federal court, so the circuit court had no rights to try it, to which the judge agreed and released Strouder. So Strouder escaped the death penalty for murder, but as some very small consolation, he was imprisoned for nine years as all of this mess took place. So a long story, not an outcome I would necessarily agree with, but the ruling of the Supreme Court made the Equal Protection Clause quite clear. This clause affords all citizens equal rights. This man was not afforded equal rights, and based on that technicality, he was allowed to go free. Citizens of the United States, regardless of anything, must at least be treated equally. So that's as far as we'll go with this clause and with Section 1. Now moving to Section 2, we read, quote, Representatives shall be apportioned among the several states according to their respective numbers, counting the whole number of persons in each state, excluding Indians not taxed, but when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for the President and Vice President of the United States, representatives in Congress, the executive and judicial officers of a state, or the members of the legislature thereof, is denied to any of the male inhabitants of such state being 21 years of age and citizens of the United States states or in any way abridged except for participation in rebellion or other crime, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in the proportion which the number of such male citizens shall bear to the whole number of male citizens 21 years of age in such state. Got it? I mean, I really think that's pretty self-explanatory. Moving on. No, I'm just kidding. This is actually pretty straightforward. I'm not wrong there, but not at a single quick one time through reading. So let's break it down a little bit. This comes back to how many representatives each state gets in the House of Representatives. And remember, at this time, these were supposed to be the direct link to the people, the individuals arguing and fighting to protect the citizens of their respective state, not so much the country as a whole. So these were important. The rules for how many representatives per state have already been set and modified, so this wasn't in question. What was in question was what to do with the newly freed former slaves and the fact that they are not considered full citizens of the United States. See, if you recall, up to this point, the three-fifths clause was in effect. 
As a quick reminder, the Southern slaveholders, or more accurately, the Southern government officials, think Democrats, wanted to count all their slaves toward the total population of the state, not to concede that blacks were in fact people. No, they were property, but they were human-like property, and the greater the population, the more reps you get, so the slave states could overrun the federal government and dictate policy, which would undoubtedly have propagated slavery larger and farther into the country. And the North argued that they couldn't call their slaves both humans and property at the same time, and based on the way they truly viewed their slaves, well, then the North could count all of their livestock as population as well, which would have swung the power dynamic massively in favor of the Northern free states. Well, in order to rectify this issue, the three-fifths clause was agreed upon, counting each of the black slaves as three-fifths of a person. This was not to dehumanize the blacks, much like the left and the media wants to tell us. Rather, this was to avoid the fragmenting and collapse of the new country while playing the long game with the intent that over time more people would see that slavery was wrong, people would migrate toward the free states, the number of slaveholders and thus slaves would reduce, and eventually those who opposed slavery would be able to legally and easily legislate the end to slavery. It was actually pretty ingenious when you look at it. Well, now that slaves were free, they should no longer be counted as three-fifths of a person, right? But now that they were free, they were not beholden to think and do as their slave masters told them. So to attempt to stop the southern states from counting blacks as population in order to up their number of reps, but still deny blacks the right to vote in elections for who should represent them... They enacted this clause that simply stated that if you deny any males 21 years or older the right to vote, your population would then be decreased by the same number as those that were excluded from voting rights. This exclusion would then lower the population, in fact potentially lower than when the three-fifths clause was in effect, and could severely reduce the number of reps that the state had at the federal level. Again, pretty ingenious. And don't you dames worry, broads will get their rights soon enough. Now, I can say dames and broads because in the context of this segment, you don't have all of your rights yet, so don't get your panties in a bunch. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop doing that before my safety is threatened by certain individuals, and oh, yeah, you and I both know who you are. Moving to section three, we read, quote, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each House, remove such disability." So this one is actually pretty straightforward, despite so many words. Bottom line, the framers of this amendment felt it might be a bad idea to allow the former rebellious states, the Confederate states, to just re-vote in people that rebelled against the United States and wanted to secede from the Union in the first place. So they were disqualified from holding office at a federal level and at the state level. Basically, they needed to start putting in applications at fast food joints and grocery stores because they're going to need themselves a jobby job. Interestingly, this clause of this amendment has come up as of the last couple years, and do you know why? If I state the word insurrection one more time, does that help? See, there's a reason that the Democrats, the 
leftist political wonks and the mainstream media, as well as the J6 committee, is so focused on calling the literally mostly peaceful protest of January 6th, 2021, an insurrection. It wasn't an insurrection, it wasn't even close to an insurrection, but they must make that term stick, because by doing that, they can eliminate former President Donald Trump from running for office at any point in the future. Unless, of course, both House and Senate vote to reinstate him at a margin of two-thirds for, which will never happen. The legal definition of insurrection is as follows, quote, A violent uprising by a group or movement acting for the specific purpose of overthrowing the constituted government and seizing its powers. At no point did the group of mostly socks with sandals wearing grandmas and grandpas intend to walk in with their cameras and maps of D.C. and take over the government. At no point did Trump call for the overthrowing of government and seizing of power. Quite literally, Trump called for the use of the constitutional process to have the spineless VP Mike Pence delay the certification of the election. That's, although unprecedented, not illegal. Now, I actually like Mike Pence as a person. We can argue if Pence should have done it or not. But what Trump was calling for was completely legal and constitutional. At no point did Trump organize or call for his MAGA minions to choo-choo their way on into the Capitol and seize the reins of power. If you believe that, I'm very sorry for your brain. But the vile leftist powers that be and their demon horde of media brokers are doing everything they can to disqualify Trump regardless of if Trump wins the next presidential election or not, or even gets the nomination, I don't think the spurious charge of insurrection could ever hold up, especially not with the most recent release of all the footage, which was literal murder, according to the frantic manic lefties. Uh, now, moving to section four, quote, the validity of the public debt of the United States authorized by law, including debts incurred for payment of pensions and bounties for services in suppressing insurrection or rebellion, shall not be questioned. But neither the United States nor any state shall assume or pay any debt or obligation incurred in aid of insurrection or rebellion against the United States or any claim for the loss or emancipation of any slave, but all such debts, obligations, and claims shall be held illegal and void. Again, simply stated, the federal government has the right to borrow and incur debt, including debts incurred suppressing insurrections. Unfortunately, this is crap. We should have a balanced budget amendment. We always should have had that, but that wouldn't have been practical at the time as we incurred debt during the Revolution, again during the Civil War, and at various times in our history. Debt, and nobody tell Dave Ramsey I said this, or I will deny it and swear that it was you that deepfaked me, debt can have a use and a purpose. That said, I don't think a single founder could have ever assumed that the true traitorous insurrection would come from within, using crippling debt as a means to destroy the country. <laughs> uh, but here we are. What this clause did is essentially tell the South that, uh, no, we're not paying your debts, and no, we're not rebuilding you, and uh, no, we're not paying anyone for their loss of slave labor, etc. This, of course, applies to anything in the future, but this was essentially a smackdown of the South, telling them that they made their bed, now they'll have to lie in it. And finally, Section 5 states, quote, The Congress shall have power to enforce, by appropriate legislation, the provisions of this article. And this is termed the Enforcement Clause. <laughs> they're, they're so good at picking out clever names. I mean, let's be honest here. This was essentially a soft threat to the southern states. You can comply with what we've got here, 
Or Congress can come in and put the screws to your state by imposing all sorts of federally mandated laws, forcing your compliance, or else you'll be in violation of federal law, and we don't want that to happen now, do we? Oh, I didn't think so. And that, that is the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. This amendment was passed by Congress and forwarded to the states on June 13, 1866, for ratification. Now, there never was a question as to if this would be ratified and adopted or not. It wasn't a request for ratification by the states. This one was sent out as a demand. Now, out of the Confederate states, Tennessee ratified it nearly immediately. For the Confederate states that refused to ratify it immediately... Well, the military was sent in as an acting government, deposing the state-elected government at the time until a new civil government could be established and the amendment ratified. So the amendment was officially ratified just over two years after it was sent to the states on July 9th, 1868, and made part of the Constitution. And with that ratification, we'll ratify and adopt this segment. Oh, that was tacky. And we'll end our look at the American Genesis. Until next week, that is. So, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Okay, you know how this works. I'm your little trained monkey. Dance, monkey, you shout. Have you ever heard of schadenfreude? I bet you've experienced it. Hopefully this isn't why you're listening to my goal update number eight. Schadenfreude is an 18th century German word that it doesn't actually have an English translation. It's more of a feeling or more of a emotion, maybe I should say. Per Wikipedia, so you know it's good, it means, quote, the experience of pleasure, joy, or self-satisfaction that comes from learning of or witnessing the troubles, failures, or humiliation of another. <laughs> if you've ever watched a reality TV show or had a kid in a competition or just can't take the arrogance of that guy anymore, you've likely experienced schadenfreude. Like I said, I hope you're not schadenfreuding me right now. Anyway, let's get started, shall we? Regarding my weight loss, back on track for the most part this week. It's funny, not haha funny like a clown for our amusement, more funny sad. On Monday morning, I weighed my bulk like normal, and once again, pure, unadulterated optimism for the official Tuesday weigh-in. Then, as I was working out Monday evening, I thought to myself, I thought... You know, I feel kind of bloated. Now, I didn't have a big heavy dinner, no unusual snacking, just kind of felt bloated. So I tempered my earlier optimism. When I weighed in on Tuesday morning, I was, uh, I was justified in tempering it. Now, look, I lost 2.6 pounds. That's fantastic. But that was 1.2 pounds heavier than I was the morning before. Now, what can we glean from this? The human body is a jerk, apparently. So that said, still down 2.6 more pounds, and that brings my total loss to 18.7 pounds, which is 6.7 pounds ahead of my goal pace. This puts me at 195.7 pounds with an average of about 
2.3 pounds lost per week. Now, I think I'll have another four pound lost week in one of the upcoming weeks as I've had some very low net calorie days and some losses that don't quite match up to what they should be. Now, this is not necessarily on purpose that I didn't eat my calories. I was just kind of done eating for the day. So anyway, that goal stays at a nice dark, solid green. Incidentally, I had my annual physical on Wednesday. This was the first one I had in two and a half years. Now, how do you have an annual physical once every two and a half years? Well, because I openly refused to wear a stupid useless mask in order to have an optional procedure performed. But the all-powerful CDC finally relented and rescinded their totally science-based mask rule, so I decided to see what the doc was up to. And despite being 15 pounds heftier than I was two and a half years ago, the blood pressure was good, he was happy that I was working the tonnage back down again, and he had no concerns. Then, of course, the LabCorp vampires took vials of blood, and I peed in the general vicinity of a cup, and we'll see how that comes out. But as of now, it appears I'm healthy. So you won't get rid of me that easily, you. Yeah, you know who you are. Anywho, moving to reading. Well... I mean, at least this week was respectable. I managed to blaze my way through 52 pages over the last week. Still not at the pace I I need. Uh, Since the formula I created in my tracking file automatically adds the next 300 pages needed for the month, on the first day of the month, I've fallen to 88.3% of my goal. Now that said, I only need 105 pages through the rest of the month to hit my goal pace, but for now I've made this one a light red as I've not hit my goal pace, and I've not hit my pace for the last couple weeks. Uh, Now, in my defense, this current book is a deeper book. This is not a lighthearted page-turner. This is one of those books that you read a paragraph, and then you back up and read it another time or two in order to just try to comprehend as much as possible about what's being said. Now, in hopefully no more than two weeks, I'll give you the title and a basic synopsis of the book and some of the quotes that I pulled from it, but that's later. So like I said, this one for now is going to have to be a light red. Now moving on to Bible reading, I think I've hit a good stride on this one, to be honest. Not only reading during the week, but actually feeling like I'm missing something if I don't read over the weekend as well. Is it good to just turn daily Bible reading into a simple habit? Um, Yes. (laughs) I mean, this is literally what we should be doing. We need to make reading the Bible a habit. So I've once again increased my pace from last week, this week by about 12.5%, so I'm currently sitting at a rate of 148.8% of my goal pace, which is good as I'm kind of formulating and getting a little excited about how I want to approach Bible reading after I finish this goal. So this one stays in a nice solid green. And finally, my daily devotions. Now, these are also getting into that nice habit area. The second week in a row that I read the daily devotional all seven days, again, feeling like I'm missing something if I don't do it each day. My pace improved just a few percent over last week to 112.4% of my goal pace. There's not really an end goal here. There's no finish line on this one. This is simply about creating a habit that lasts the rest of my life, however long that may be. And per my annual physical, I might be immortal. I mean, when, when the doc is calling down the hall to the other doctors to come check out his patient, when the They're all asking you to sign their stethoscopes as the epitome of health, as an impressive physical specimen. Are you buying any of this? Okay. All right. Well, the daily devotions, 
nice solid dark green still. Anyway, I better run away now. Hey, any comments, questions, concerns, you just let me know.